Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2. Well, sometimes it's difficult to keep these two men, Elijah and Elisha, separated in our minds. The names are very close together, so be lenient with me as we transition from one to the next if I get the wrong one uh, coming from my lips. Elijah means Jehovah is my God. Elisha means Jehovah is my salvation. Elijah's ministry was recorded in 1 Kings 17 through 19 and the first two chapters of 2 Kings. Elisha uh, is found in 2 Kings chapter 2 to chapter 13. Their stories overlap in 1 Kings 19 and 2 Kings 2. And uh, they're transferring... Elijah is transferring that position as minister of the prophet of Israel, his ministry, uh, from his shoulders to Elisha's. The title of the message this morning, A Tale of Two Cities, Blessing at Jericho and a Cursing at Bethel. Before we look at what happened in those two cities, I'd like to just spend a moment in review. Uh, the passing of the mantle, the mantle was Elijah's outer cloak, and uh, in 1 Kings chapter 19, God told Elijah to anoint Elisha. Uh, he said, anoint him to be the prophet in thy room, which means in thy place. And Elijah obeyed and he anointed Elisha. Three verses later, in 1 Kings 19, um, the, we found Elisha who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. Actually, there are 24 oxen in 12 pairs. Elisha was the one that was plowing with that last pair of, uh, of oxen, the 12th yoke, and that was the, the pair that he probably sacrificed and offered the offering as he was leaving after the call of God on his life. And we read that Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. That was symbolic of Elijah calling him to carry on the work, uh, giving him the robe of his office. After 60 years, uh, uh, Elisha was fulfilling that obligation as, as the prophet of Israel for 60 years. In 2 Kings 5, we won't get to that miracle today, but a little servant girl was waiting on Naaman's wife. Uh, Naaman was the king of Syria. He was also a leper. And the servant girl said that there was a prophet in Samaria who he wishes her master could go there because that prophet could help. So the king sent a letter requesting help from the king of Israel. Uh, he thought Naaman was just trying to, uh, to, to provoke a fight, an argument, because hey, who am I that I can cure leprosy? But in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 8, it says, And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent unto the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. And so Elisha was that prophet taking the mantle that was passed down from Elijah. The request for a double portion of Elijah's spirit we also mentioned in passing last week in 2 Kings chapter 2 at the very in the middle of the chapter verses 8 through 14 we find these two men standing at the river Jordan. Elijah took his cloak and the, the text says he wrapped it together that is he rolled it up smote the waters they divided and the two walked over on dry ground. Then Elijah said, 
uh, ask what you will that I'll do to thee, and, and it shall be done. And Elijah asked, or Elisha asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And Elijah said, you've asked a hard thing, but if you're with me, if you see me when I'm taken, it'll be given. And we come to verse 11 there, and it says, And it came to pass, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, It came to pass, as they still went on and talked, and behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Down to verse 13, he also took up the mantle that Elijah of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan and took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. I mentioned last week that the double portion was the right of the firstborn son. And Elijah passed on that inheritance to be the next prophet of Israel with that blessing, that double blessing of the firstborn. As Elijah returned, the prophets of Jericho were watching. They saw what had happened. They watched the first miracle at the Jordan as it parted. And they watched him coming back. And their words are recorded in verse 15. The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. Then the prophets of Elisha, uh, or the prophets asked Elisha if they could just uh, do one thing. They, they wanted to form a search party to find out if Elijah somehow got dropped along the way. You see that in verses 16 through 18. It's kind of funny for us, but this is what they did. And they said unto him, Behold now, there, there be thy servants, fifty strong men, or there be with thy servants, fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray thee, and seek thy master, lest peradventure the Spirit of the Lord hath taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, Ye shall not send. And, then, and when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and they sought three days, but found him not. And when they had uh, and, and when they came again to him, for he tarried at Jericho, he said unto them, Did I not say unto you, Go not? So Elijah said, Don't go on this search party. But they kept asking. They urged him until he was embarrassed about it. He was ashamed. Uh, I've often asked, Why did they want to do that? Maybe they wanted closure. Maybe they wanted the assurance that Elisha was really the new prophet now instead of Elijah. Elijah can't be found, and so it must be Elisha. Maybe they were just curious. Now, was that really God's whirlwind and chariot, or was it just a storm that rose up and blew him uh, away? Elisha finally allowed them to go against his better judgment. And for three days, those 50 men combed the area with no success. I love Elisha's words at the end of verse 18. Did I not say unto you, go not? It's, it's, we all like to say that, don't we? Or think it. I told you so. I told you not to go. Well, it's time to start listening to what God has to say through this prophet, Elisha. They wanted proof that Elijah was gone. Let me assure you, when God takes his servants home, he never loses any of them. <laughs> when Jesus comes back for his saints, no one is going to be almost caught up, will altogether be caught away. Don't bother sending out any search parties for us. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. 
Well, from here through 2 Kings 13, we have a record of the miracles that God performed through the prophet Elisha. They may not be in chronological order, but they're here to design Israel to turn from idols and serve the true and living God. And it's my prayer as we go through these miracles of Elisha that we too will have a greater faith in God's power and in his wisdom in our own lives. Now I've got to give this this note, and you've heard me say it before, so bear with me. But when people ask if we need signs and wonders to turn someone from error to the true God today, I always answer them with the words from John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. There are enough miracles recorded in God's word for a person to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. The Bible has all that a man needs to read, understand his sin, come to Christ, and be saved. It's all we need to have to live a life that's pleasing to God as believers. There's another great passage in Luke 16 that tells us that there's enough in the Old Testament for a person to believe in God and escape hell. It's a parable. It's not a parable because in that, it's in Luke chapter 16, but in that, God uses the names of Lazarus and Abraham. Parables generally don't have the names of people in it. Also, parables are, are usually begun with the words, he spake a parable unto them. We don't have that language here. Luke 16, 19 starts, there was a certain rich man. And the account tells us of a rich man who died, and in hell he asked Abraham to send Lazarus with water just on the tip of his finger to cool his tongue because he was tormented in the flame. Abraham said, it can't be done. I can't cross this great gulf that's fixed between us. So the rich man pleaded for someone at least to be sent to warn his five brothers so that they could escape the tragic place of torment. And in Luke 16, 29, we read, Abraham said unto him, they have Moses and the prophets. That is, is the Old Testament. That's Elisha's miracles recorded. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. Remember his answer? He said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they persuade it, though one rose from the dead. These miracles that God did through Elisha and Elijah are not just recorded so that Israel will turn from idolatry to the one and true, only true God. They're here for us today. If you've never trusted Christ as your salvation, I hope that these miracles will help you consider who God is, his power, his might. If you're weak in your faith and struggling with the trials and they seem overwhelming in your life, these miracles are here to help you to see who God is. He has not changed. And while we don't look for miracles today, we can read about them in the Bible, and there are enough there for us to build our faith. So let's look now at the two cities, Jericho and Bethel, and see what happens at each place. The title of the message, A Tale of Two Cities. The blessing at Jericho was... The fact that this water that was un, uh, unusable is now made purified. And so we read that in verses 19 through 22. And the men of the city said unto Elisha, 
Behold, I pray thee, the situation of the city is pleasant, as everything is good except for one thing, as my Lord seeth, but the water is not, and the ground barren. And he said, Bring me a new cruise, and put salt therein. And they brought it to him. And he went forth into the spring waters, and cast the salt in there, and said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. So the waters were healed unto this day, according to the saying of Elisha, which he spake. Jericho was in, in need of good, fresh water. Jericho is in the Jordan Valley. It's located north of the Dead Sea. It's a city where Joshua and the children of Israel first came uh, when they came into the land. Remember the trumpets played, the people shouted, the walls fell inward. Rain would come down the hills from the west uh, to provide water for Jericho, but there are also some natural springs that were there in the valley. Today the area is rich with citrus trees and crops. Jericho had been a curse in Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. Joshua said, Cursed be the man uh, before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. This was a curse that Joshua said, if, it, if anybody tries to rebuild the city after it's been destroyed. The city was rebuilt by Hiel the Bethlehite. And he paid the price with his two sons. We can read about it in 1 Kings 16.34. It says, He laid the foundation in Abiram his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua the son of Nun. Look at the description of the problem now in Jericho. The, the water is not. The ground is barren. That word not sounds like, well, they just didn't have any. There was a lack of water there. But the word not in Hebrew is wrong. It means bad or evil or harmful. So it wasn't just that it wasn't there. There was water there, but it was harmed. There was something wrong with it. The first occurrence of that word wrong is Genesis 2.9, where it's talk, it talks about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and just the word evil. We'll see it again when we get to 2 Kings 4.4, the words used to describe the harm that's in a pot. The school of the prophets, they brought back gourds, they put it into a, a stew, and uh, all of a sudden there was poison. It says there were, was death in the pot. And so that word harm is there. So the water in Jericho was harmed. It was evil. They couldn't drink it. It would not grow crops. Elisha added salt to the springs or the source of the water supply, and the waters were healed. Now, I don't think there's a chemical explanation for this. This is a miracle that God performed. But notice that he asked the people of Bethel, Elisha asked them in verse 20, to bring a jar, a cruise, and put salt in it. Why did he have them do that? The Bible, uh, Expositor's Bible Commentary tells us uh, why he might have asked for their help. Interestingly, Elisha wrought the cure through means supplied by the people of Jericho so that their faith might be strengthened through submission and active participation in God's cleansing work. Uh, these people, by bringing the salt, didn't do the miracle. Elisha was careful not to take credit for the miracle. It was the Lord. Notice it says, 
I have healed these waters, verse 21. But God involved them for some reason. Maybe he wants us to see the wonderful work that he is accomplishing. And he wants us to be close to see that kind of work so that we'll stand amazed at his power, so that we won't forget what he's done. When God works things, he changes them dramatically. The water was poison, and now it's pure. The waters were healed. They were mended. They were cured. They were made whole. So when God works, he does things dramatically. When God works, he does things beneficially. The ground that was barren is now able to produce fruit. When God works, he changes things permanently. Verses 21 and 2, he said, I've healed these waters. There shall be, there shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. So the waters were healed unto this day. It was permanent. Has God done a work of salvation in your life? If so, it was dramatic. You say, well, I've heard other people's testimonies, and mine isn't quite as dramatic as theirs. Well, personalities differ. God works in different ways to bring people to himself, but he also brings us to that point where we have to confess our sins and trust the shed blood of Jesus Christ who died on, our, on the cross for our sins. And the Bible describes that change that takes place in a life, whether you're effervescent in your personality or whether you're an introvert, The Bible describes the change as coming from darkness to light, from death to life. There's a dramatic change. And God changes us in a dramatic way. He also changes us in a beneficial way. Once you're saved, you should have a life that benefits other people. We have this overwhelming desire to tell someone else that they can be saved too. If If God can save me, he can save you. The Holy Spirit produces spiritual fruit in our lives. He gives us spiritual gifts so that we can edify each other in the church service. And so our lives are now productive. We see eternal fruit. And the change that God produces in our lives is also a permanent change. Aren't you glad for that? When a person trusts Christ for salvation, Jesus promises eternal life. 2 Kings 2.21, There shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. What a wonderful promise in John chapter 10, verse 28. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. It's a permanent change when you're saved. The lesson in this miracle is that God will help those who are in need. He can bring life when death seems to reign. He can bring fruitfulness where there seems to be barrenness. What a great miracle, an object lesson of what God can do in our hearts and in our lives if we let him. Now we come to the next city, Bethel, and we see the cursing, the punishment of those who mock. Verse 23, And he went up from thence unto Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head, go up, thou bald head. And he turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood and tear 42 of the children, 42 children of them. And he went from thence to Mount Carmel, and from thence he returned to Samaria. Now what happened when Elisha was on his way to Bethel? This story here. 
Raymond Dillard reminds us, it was the citizens of Bethel who had mocked God with golden calves, idols that were proclaimed as the gods that had redeemed Israel from Egypt. Remember, they said, these be thy gods, O Israel, that brought thee out of the land of Egypt. And he makes this conclusion. The sons are like the fathers. Those are the ones who settled at Bethel. The culprits here are identified as little children who came out of the city. Now, before you picture uh, a beginner's or primary Sunday school class of boys, let's look carefully at the wording. The word little here can not mean not just small in stature, but little in number. Uh, not, not young in age, but a small group. So get that, let that sink into your, into your mind as you look at this and, and you say, well, this doesn't seem fair to me. And whenever you come to the scripture and say what God does doesn't seem fair to you, it's time to start looking and find out why. Okay? God always is fair. Also, we have the word children. The Hebrew is renyar. It signifies it can be used for an infant, it can be used for a child, but it also can be used for a, a, a young man, a servant, and even a soldier. Isaac was called a renyar when he was 28 years old, in Genesis 21, 5 through 12. Joseph was called renyar when he was 39 years old, Genesis 41, 12. Um, in Genesis 14, 24, it uses the word for soldiers who are returned from a battle. In 1 Samuel 9.3, it translated the word for servants. So this was a small group of immature men. They knew what they were doing, and the Lord held them accountable. How serious is this offense of mocking the prophet Elisha? In the Bible, uh, mocking generally is used for the preoccupation of those who do not know Christ, unbelievers. The Hebrew word is lutz. It means to make a mouth at. You ever seen children do that? You've probably done it too. Your face is sore after you do it. You put your fingers in your mouth and make it wide to make mouths at. To scoff, to deride, to scorn. Lutz is the word that's used in Psalm 1.1. The blessed and godly man doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. In Proverbs 13.1, says, a wise son heareth his father's instruction, but a, sc a scorner heareth not rebuke. A scorner, Proverbs tells us, can't be corrected. But we need to correct him anyway because the simpleton will see it and take notice. He'll learn from it. Proverbs 9.8, uh, reprove not a scorner lest he hate thee. Proverbs 19.25, smite a scorner and the simple will beware. So scorning is the occupation of an unbeliever in, in the scriptures. Judging by the punishment that we see here, this is a serious sin. To mock God's messenger is really to mock the God who sent him with that message. What did they say to Elisha? Go up, thou bald head. They say it twice, and I think it's recorded twice in the text because it was something that they were continuously saying, mocking him. Go up may have a reference of going back up to Bethel, the high place, and, and join in the worship to Baal there. Or it may be a reference to the departure of Elijah. He went up. Why don't you go up now? Let's see you. 
The bald head mean, could mean that he's losing his hair, or it could mean that it's shorter than, than others. A normal dress would have been uh, included a covering for their hair, so it may be that they didn't even see if he was bald or not. But they're, they're saying this, mocking him. What was the consequence? Now, two bears came out and killed those who mocked Elisha. In verse 24, it says uh, what Elisha did. He turned back. He looked on them. He cursed them in the name of the Lord. His curse was spoken uh, as, as a judgment in the Lord's name. He wasn't defending himself. He was defending the Lord whom he represented. What a great lesson for us. We shouldn't be in a place where we have to defend ourselves, our honor, our integrity, our position. But we do fight to defend the honor of God. And when our world castigates and ridicules and mocks God, that's when it's time to stand up. Bible Knowledge Commentary says, The cursing stemmed not from Elisha's pride, but from their disrespect for the Lord as reflected in their treatment of his spokesman. It's dangerous to argue that the punishment was too extreme. It's interesting to note that Elisha had nothing to do with the punishment. The Lord was the one who caused these bears to come out and punish these 42 who mocked his prophet. God's work should never be called into question. What he does is always right. It's an unusual attack. These bears didn't attack out of hunger. It doesn't say that they devoured them. They didn't attack the prophet. He was standing right there with them. This was a divine act of God, a punishment for the sin of mocking God. The story would have spread throughout Israel. It would have been a great lesson for everyone. The New Testament echoes the warning in Galatians 6, 7, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. What are the lessons in this miracle? Well, if you're the one that's being mocked and scorned by others, let God be the one who executes vengeance. Leave justice in God's hands. Romans 12, 19 says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Leave it in his hands. If you are one who is mocking God, or mocking God's servant, or mocking Christianity, know that God offers you forgiveness. The Lord Jesus Christ was mocked as he hung on the cross, as he died for your sins. Matthew 27 tells us of those who reviled him, those who mocked him. First, those who passed by, they wagged their heads. They said, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. Those who passed by mocked. Chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked. It says, mocking said, verse 42, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. The thieves also which were crucified mocked him. But Jesus said to one of those thieves, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Through his death on the cross, Jesus makes it available for those who mock him to be forgiven. 
And Jericho got offered blessings of fresh, pure water to the inhabitants of Jericho. At Bethel, God showed the mocking that mocking him will not go unnoticed, it will not go unpunished. And yet he offers forgiveness through the very one who was mocked when he took our place and suffered for the punishment of our sin. Thank God for his, his blessings. Heed his warnings and trust him to forgive you and to save you today. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that in this passage of scripture we'll learn from these miracles more about the greatness of our God, more about the, his justice, more about his mercy, his love, more about his kindness and compassion. And I pray that in knowing that, our lives will be strengthened. We'll be able to go in to tomorrow and the rest of this week with the realization that you're the one who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Help us to leave those things in your hands that we can't change. Help us to have faith and trust in you. Help us to realize that you give bountiful blessings each day. And the salvation that we have is, is a wonderful gift. I pray that if there's one here today who does not know Christ, who has not received the gift of salvation, that today will be the day when they come to know you as their Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.